This is Jan Cox, talk number 2,567, recorded August 21st, 2000. Two things I was going to mention that to me are related. Again, the idea that no one knows anything, but there is a way in which you may have never considered it. Because the way in which I intend it, the way I see it, the way that I got something from the, and it's not just an idea. I'm going to try to explain it a little more because I do not, to me, it is not an allegory. There are very specific exceptions to it, but they are exceptions insofar as how you can use the attempted study of what's going on in your head. Plus, my point out again, you know, to me now, the whole great mystical struggle to awaken, achieve enlightenment and experience the inner liberation. It's so simple it can be put in two or three words. And that's it. And yet, as I said, I have even added a new feature to my website. I am turning out even more words every morning, getting up in spite of what I just said. (laughs) When I say that you don't know anything, that no one knows anything and that you can't know anything. Uh, to me, it is not allegorical. And I never thought to try and put it to you this way. Uh, consider for an example. For years and years, it was commonly thought, it was an accepted reality, let's say people who had a dog, that you had a dog, And the relationship between you and the dog was that you got him as a pup normally, but at any rate, and you fed him, you took care of him, and the dog loved you. And you loved the dog. Then came the day of modern zoology and canine psychology, well, more scientific investigation. And the accepted fact now is that a dog doesn't love you in any sense. You know, the humans mean love. The dog has no particular affection for you. What happens is because that you're feeding him and because normally just the relationship starts out with you uh, making the dog submit, especially, especially if it's a pup. By spanking him, by scolding him when he relieves himself indoors and when he chews on things. That what happens is quite simply is he takes you to be higher up in the hierarchy of what would be a dog pack. He takes you to be the alpha male, whether you be man or woman. You feed him, you make him submit, he takes a subservient position to you. But he doesn't love you. He doesn't love you any more than if he was back actually a wild dog or a wolf. And he was out and he was way down the pecking order, amounting to nothing. In other words, he is not the alpha male. He is not the leader of the pack. If he's any domesticated animal, if they are a pack animal, then if they have been domesticated, then they are never the alpha male, no matter what. Particular animal they happen to be, because if they have been 
domesticated, what it means is they have submitted to your dominance. But they don't love you. Anyway, this is the accepted scientific view. And if you're a reasonable person, I guess when you first heard it, I can imagine that there were people who went, Oh, you know, my dog loves me. What's this crap? You know, there's science for you, trying to ruin everything. My dog loves me. I know he does. You know, I can just see people reaching down while they read this article. But science proves that dogs don't love their human masters. They simply submit to them the same way. And I can, can't you just see people reading that, good dog lovers, and as soon as they read it, go, ugh, and just immediately call their dog over and hug the dog, like for reassurance, and go, I know you love me. And then they glance back from the dog to this article and go, ugh. Well, let's assume that you're, we're speaking about somebody a bit more reasonable. <laughs> and they read it, and it just hits them that, yeah, that's true. Without them being upset and thinking any less of their relationship with their dog. But, in other words, they read it. Probably all of you who are listening to me, you're reasonable enough and interested in so-called intellectual matters. You've got that kind of mind or you still wouldn't be holding in there with me with all of this. And so, I'm sure that you could read that and think, well, that's very interesting. I never thought about it. And you could look at your dog and it just hit you that, yeah, that's true. I mean, there is the explanation. It doesn't change the way I feel about the dog. Doesn't change the way I love him, and I know no way he treats me. It hadn't affected anything, but my God, that's interesting. That that is what's happened is he simply takes me. I'm his dog pack, and he has submitted to me. I'm the leader of the pack, and that's what it is. No, it's not. Nobody knows that to be true. This gets real. This gets real subtle. I hope you get it. Just It's real quick and right by you. The interesting my little build-up was that that's an accepted fact now, and I'm not disagreeing. And I assume that when you heard it, if you'd never heard it before, but if you just if that was first time hearing it, does it not strike you that, well, yeah, well, by God, there's something new. That people have gotten down, people who are interested in zoology, well, somebody began to study the relationship and finally it struck them one way or the other that that's what was going on. That they, I can imagine zoological graduate students somewhere and they take it upon themselves and they get behind glass one-way or two-way mirrors and observing people and their dogs in some sort of home-style environment. You can imagine going on maybe for several years and they write papers and revise it. But then it finally hits them that that's exactly what's going on. Between a dog, no matter how close the dog and the human is, no matter that the human talks to the dog, and many people, many humans believe that the dog even is understanding them and even tries to give facial expressions and smiles and does more than just wag its tail when you come home. It, its face shows some sort of love and affection. And in spite of all that, imagine these zoological students, maybe some professor, and they keep looking, and it hits them. Well, here's what it is, because they have also observed wolves they will observe what's going on, and it hits them that's exactly the relationship. A domesticated dog, his relationship with his owner is the same relationship. And you can imagine them coming up with all kinds of, when they're feeding, how they walk together, uh, whether the dog lowers his ears and his tail, if the human makes aggressive sounds, and they keep looking, they look, and they, and they realize the domesticated dog, a pet, has 
from his view, he is displaying every, in the exact relationship, everything, his body language, the sounds he makes, the relationship is exactly that between a dog and his human master as it is between a dog that is down in the hierarchy of a wolf pack, the same relationship as that wolf would have with the alpha male, the leader of the pack, the dominant one. And that that's all it is. And you hear it, you read about it, and you go, my, how interesting. I guess that is it. Now that you say it, you might read it and just hit you, that's it. It doesn't affect the way you feel about your dog, but it hits you. Well, what an interesting thing that somebody, now it's just obvious, now that you think about it. I mean, that's what it is. No, it's not. Nobody knows what it is. It fits. I'm not denying that. And there's all sorts of things that fit. There are all kinds of psychological models of humans. For a long time, the Freudian model fit, as far as everyone's concerned. Now, it's fallen in disfavor, and there are new models. But even the Freudian, you can go back anywhere. You can go back... Uh, of course, now it's been discredited, but you can go back to some of the early Athenian, the Greek writers that were trying to do, start up science when whoever it was, the first person, whoever it was, that all of the, it was the first atomic theory. I forget his name, which one it was, but the first guy that came up, he was, we're talking about three or 400 B.C., that first used the term atomic, that he said that, he had decided. He had nothing. That he had no tele, you know, no microscopes, certainly no electron microscopes. He was doing it all in his head, but he, de he concluded that everything had to be made up of something, that, and he called them atoms. And he, in his view, they were, you finally had to get to the point that there was something that was indivisible, that everything we see had to be made up of something, because he realized you can take a tree and cut it down and turn it into wood, and then you can burn it and turn it into ashes, and then you can burn the what's left of the ashes and turn into charcoal. You just keep on and on and on. But he concluded there's got to be a limit to it. There has to be some basic building blocks. All right. Back then you could have heard that and went, it fits. He's right. That's how it is. No, it's not. And of course, then you can move forward 2,500 years and hear the quantum theory. And you could hear that. If you could follow it, and you could hear it, and you go, that's it. They now at least have a better, or at least they now have an absolute working model of how things are. That's how things are. No, it's not. Nobody knows how things are. You can come up with a model that fits, and it can be taken to be scientific. Or it can be taken to be part of a soft science, such as a sociological or a psychological model of how life operates. But you understand, nobody knows. And I was going to say the exception. The only way that anyone would know, the only way that it could be known what a dog's relationship is to a human, the only way it could be known would be by if there was a God. Like if there was some creature that we could, we'll call it a God or some superhuman type person. It would have to be whoever created it. Which, you know, is ill-founded. I'm just pointing out that that's the only way that anyone would know. The only thing it could know would be life itself. Now, what seems that what is the exception? The only thing you can know 
would be you being in a somewhat similar and analogous position, as I just described, of life or of God, a God, if there was a creator of everything. The only thing that a person can know is something that he did. The only thing you can ever know, I submit to you for a very good reason, the only thing that you can ever know would be you picked up two pieces of scrap wood laying in the backyard, got a nail and a hammer, and you laid one piece on the other and you nailed them together. And you sat down, you looked at it, you know that you did that. The only thing that you can know is something that you did. Huh? You, you dropped the glass and it broke. You look at the pieces and you know, I did that. But when it comes to anything that you didn't do, when I say you, you understand I mean anybody. When you come to something that, that a human did not do, it's impossible to know. It's impossible to say, well, everything's made of quarks or everything's made of bosons. Or to say that a dog doesn't love a human, a dog simply submits to a human master the same way that a lower-ranked wolf does to the uh, alpha male wolf. Nobody knows that. Nobody can know it unless you did it. Unless it is something you did, you can't know it. Tell me that's not true. Well, you could, of course. <laughs> uh, if you don't get it, I repeat, to me, it is very subtle, and I would expect that you could miss it real easily right off. But you understand, anything that a human observes, I don't care if he's professionally trained, uh, there, there's no exception to this. If a human mind is looking at something and that person did not do it, if it is not looking at those two pieces of wood nailed together or looking at the broken glass on the floor, if it is not something that that person did, then I say that you can see it this way. I say that whatever the mind of that person is looking at, if that mind says, well, I know what's going on, that mind is incorrect. Because the mind cannot know what's going on about anything that it didn't do. That's the only exception. Of course, the exception really pays off well. Again, we're faced with technology. We're faced with having life as easy as we have it now. And our increased lifespan due to medicine and related technologies and changes in our diet, and etc., as you all know. But those are things that a mind looked at. And then humans did something. They physically did something. But the, any idea that we live after we die, there is some creator somewhere. Uh, I live before this. Uh, you reap what you sow. Uh, what goes around comes around. Uh, on and on and on. My dog loves me. Or, no, that's right, I read, my dog simply submits to me. Well, at least I know that. I still like him, but... I read that, and I know that. No, you don't. The people, who, the people who said, we have discovered. We have enough statistical observation. We have studied this matter long enough that we can state without any doubt that dogs, we're not in the argument of saying your dog is not uh, connected to you. 
But we are saying that dogs do not love humans. It's not possible. That's not what's going on. It's the wrong terminology. A dog's relationship to a human master is the same as a lower-ranked dog is with the alpha male wolf in, in a wolf pack. I mean, that's just a simple fact. Our scientist says, well, it's just a simple fact that uh, such and such is true about energy. Such and such is true below the uh, subatomic levels of which we have any knowledge. Such and such must be true. Nobody knows. Because it's not possible to know. If you didn't do it, it's not possible to know. You can certainly, in science, as I said, and even in social sciences, such as that thing about dogs and humans, you can certainly make observations. You can certainly do studies. You could do experiments. Wherein what you say is your knowledge of the situation fits the observations. Fits to such a degree, let us say, that anyone at the time interested in the matter would look at your observation, your knowledge. That is, let's take the dog again. That your model, that your new knowledge that refutes the idea that dogs have something resembling love or human affection for their mortal masters, that all they're doing is doing instinctively. They're just operating instinctively as they would to a more dominant canine. That is the fact, according to them. There's no doubt about it. That's it. It may fit, and let us say that anyone interested who read their research would say, well, that's true. So it can be accepted because I'm saying at the time, from contemporaneous views of interested parties, all of their observations and all of their so-called knowledge, their new knowledge about this, may fit exactly the observations that you may read about it and everything they describe about how dogs react when they have a good relationship with a human and how they react and they point out all this is when you take it back to the canine world is always the way a dog or a wolf would be acting to blah blah. So you read it step by step and each and every time from your experience and you're reading their research, you go, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, well, I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, yeah, yeah. And you go all the way down, you think, well, that's it. They have hit it. They have nailed. They now understand. Somebody knows the real basis of the relationship between a dog and his human master. No, they don't. They never will because you can't. If you didn't do it, you can't know. You can come up with knowledge or a model that absolutely fits and pleases all interested parties' observations. And therefore, you may have no one there to naysay your finding. That you say, this is what it is. And everyone who's interested looks at your research and your conclusion, your new knowledge of the matter. And you say, this is what is going on between dogs and their masters. This is what is going on when humans suffer from phobias. And you look at all their research and you consider your knowledge of the situation. And you have to go, well, that's true. That explains it. This knowledge right here tells you what's going on. No, it doesn't. It's not possible. It may fit so perfectly that no ordinary human can find any objection to it, can raise an objection. But it'll go by you so fast, what I'm saying, if you don't watch it, you'll miss it. It's not possible, literally, to know what's going on if you didn't do it, if it's not something you did.
And I consider that, for our purposes, the exceptions. So I'm not trying to highlight that. But you obviously can see what that is because it goes far beyond merely dropping a glass or nailing together two scraps of wood. It has to do with all technological advances. Again, to me, it has to do, surely. See, I always speak dogmatically like I know that. I don't know this. But by God, it fits. And I discovered it. Well, as far as I'm concerned, that must be the radical purpose of the mind. Is to make survival easier. I mean, that's the only reason that we can see that life does anything. When life makes any change, when life makes any development in a creature, if it's long range, if it's not some short-lived mutation, I mean, we've all, everybody's had, those interested have had long enough to observe this. Life does not go down useless streets. When it makes a change in something, it benefits the creature. Or it benefits not only the creature, but the creatures around it. It affects the immediate environment of the food web. But it affects the creature beneficially. And so obviously what the mind has done for us, there can't be any argument with this, what the mind has accomplished for us has made us live longer and made life so easy. Well, it's hard to exaggerate. You can live almost without doing anything. In a sense, we have overcome the Old Testament. God's Jehovah's curse on man of get out of here and go live by the sweat of your brow. The only way that people have to live by the sweat of their brow now is in their office if their condition goes on the blink. <laughs> or if you're staying down at the welfare office and their conditioning goes off and you call, Jesus, what an effort. I have to stand here and the lines are long today. I had to stand here for 45 minutes and it was hot before I could get my check. Were it not for the mind, we would not have life this easy. And we'd be still dying evidently at the age of 25. You'd be an old person. So, but other than that, which nowadays to most people, all of that's of no great consequence. Because you're not responsible for the technology. Most of you are not, or most of humanity is not involved in the kinds of areas in which absolute or pure technological enhancement of survival is your uh, trade. It's not your occupation. And so most of your life is taken up with what I could say are secondary inputs into survival enhancement. That most of what most people now, uh, more and more it has to do, the statistics I've seen, as uh, the claim is those who have nothing better to do, that now, at least in America, it's approaching 50% of the workforce is engaged in entertainment. And somebody has already forecast that based upon the increase, the way it's been increasing over the last 10 or 20 years, that uh, the forecast by somebody is that in the next 20 years, something really surprising. Their, their statistical forecast was, I think, 70 to 75% of the workforce would be engaged in one way or the other in entertainment. The people got to be distracted. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. But it's what, it's a, it's a secondary form of uh, earning your keep as opposed to primary, as opposed to farming, as opposed to even something 
of even one step removed, such as mining or being a blacksmith or being actually engaged in uh, R&R in some technical field. But other than that, back to where we were, the rest of the time now, people, most of their life is spent seeking distraction. Whether they believe they're seeking or not is just the mind wandering. And, of course, entertainment is to get your mind, it's like the dog just wandering around outside or inside, just pacing and panning and annoying you. You go to a movie, you turn on TV, you read a book. To purposefully, from my kind of view, which is a correct, if you're my kind of person, you are purposefully putting yourself to sleep. That's all it is. I can put it in a nicer way I used to to myself. Every time I turn on TV, I could explain it. In not quite as harsh a term. <laughs> but then after leaving me all these years, it got to where you know, I figured, might as well toughen up. So You're purposefully putting yourself to sleep. You know that if you turn TV or go to a movie, I mean, you can drag out going to a movie for how long? A movie lasts 90 minutes, but what can, you can get what? Three or four hours out of it? That is, you start discussing it with your squeeze you go, maybe have to go get a paper then you throw it down the floor then you make coffee then you start spraying it out and you look for the theater section then you get distracted and you read the sports for a while and you discuss how the team's doing <laughs> then you lay the paper back down then you look at one or two suggestions and then you like one and your partner says ah wait I read a I think I read a horrible review and then they go say wait a minute so they go looking for the New Yorker now, where is that review? God, what was that in? Or was it Rolling Stone? Where, wait a minute, let me find that. Because I don't, really. In fact, I meant to read it to you because I figured you would think it was a good movie. And somebody just ripped the shit. Wait a minute, let me look. Man, well, you got the picture. It can go on and on and on. And then you have to dress up. And then you just think, well, are we going to eat now or stuff? So the point is, but you know what you're doing. You've got to know by now. That here I am, just in my normal state, I'm about half asleep, half awake, I just bounce back and forth. Damn, I'm tired of fighting it. I'm just going right to sleep. I know how to do it. I just turn on fucking TV. I don't need to go through that other crap. I just turn on TV and that's it. I have anchored down the dog, which is not true. I have blinded myself. I have become one with the pacing dog. The dog's taking a nap, and I am at one with the dog. So I had all kinds of ways to explain it. No, you're just purposely putting yourself to sleep. It's like I can't stand just being half asleep, half awake, back and forth. Screw that. I'll go full time asleep. Hand me that book. <laughs> That's all it is. So, back to where you were. I, I'm going ahead and guess, assume that you catch what I mean about not knowing anything and if not if you don't really feel like you got it I'm not surprised but I would very much encourage you to keep running it over through your head because surely it wouldn't take much for it to distract you what I'm saying it is not allegory but it's, it's not easy to see it's not easy to grasp it is not allegory but other than something that you physically did physically did that you did it other than that I say to you that a man's mind, no one's mind, can know anything. They can formulate so-called knowledge, 
which is models, theories, but they can call it knowledge. I'm not arguing with the word. They can say, well, here's the knowledge of the relationship between domesticated dogs and their masters. Here is the facts. They can say that, but no one knows. Their facts, their knowledge may better fit the observations that you and any other person makes at the time. Like, this explains it. This covers more. In fact, I can't think of any question regarding a domesticated dog's relationship with a human. From my knowledge, I can't think of one area, that, one thing that they did not cover. Therefore, it explains it. I enjoyed reading it. I never thought about it. It's the kind of thing that I just enjoyed it because it all fit and I never thought about it, but somebody came up with that. And it explains it. No, it doesn't. Nothing can be explained. As long as you believe that, uh, I don't care how far along you are, because I've been through it. As long as you still suffer under that, uh, it's just something you've got to get over. You're tied there. That if you think, well, if you think that I'm explaining things, that's even worse. Because it kind of gets, I know, a hollow mirror is when I start that. But if you think right now I'm explaining anything. But hey, if you think it's dangerous from your end, think about me. Think about the danger I get carried away and think, God, did I cover that or what? <laughs> of course, the answer is what? <clears throat> That's the polite... <laughs> That's my polite response to me. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Nothing can be explained. It is not possible. Nothing can be known. And even, of course, that's a lie because if you discount the mind, we know all sorts of things. But I can't tell you what. There's no need to. How about this? You know how to live. I don't mean in a social sense. You know how to keep your heart beating. You know how to take in food and swallow it without choking. You know how, you know not to put something larger than your throat into your mouth. <laughs> you know not to swallow something that looks like it's attempting to swallow you. Anyway, you know how to digest food. You know how to get rid of the leftovers. You know how to get cool when you're too hot? You know all of that. That's what I meant by you know how to live. In the strictly physical sense. We know that. Then what the mind says that it knows is just an add-on. It's an aftermarket accessory to me. It's, it's great fun, perhaps. Well, it is great fun. can be. And it obviously can be of extreme use. But when it comes to a matter that you did not do, which is really that man did not do, you know, take it on a wider basis, then the mind can know nothing. In other words, when it comes to the mental world, when it comes to what I have been calling man's secondary reality, when it comes to anything that is not tangible, Anything, religion, morality. If it's anything that you talk about, it's in the world of ideas. And with ordinary people, as I keep trying to point out, it, they miss the fact 
case you've forgotten, if you try to talk to ordinary people and point out that things that go on in the mind that have no material basis outside the mind are simply in the mind, that the mind just, that they're not real, then you, you'll be hard-pressed out of six billion, let's assume, ordinary, fairly intelligent people to ever get anyone who'll get the least glimpse of what you're saying. Well, in other words, if it's just something you think of and nobody's ever seen it, then it doesn't exist. Now, you know you can't tell that to six billion people. If nothing else, most of them will insist that they're not going to put up with you speaking about God that way, for one thing. You're not going to... Just all sorts of things, but that is the obvious one. If it is not tangible, and man did not do it, then it can't be known. By the way, since I expanded it, if you, I assume you, I hope you got it. When I said that you can't know anything unless you did it, such as you broke the glass or nailed those two scraps of wood together, uh, you can take it on a collective basis. You can know a lamp because men made this lamp. You can take that lamp apart. Of course, it will finally fall. This whole thing will fall apart, you understand? But you can take a lamp apart. You can examine a lamp. You can look at the wiring. You can anyway. You can understand. You can take it apart and say, "Well, I know this lamp. I know what the material for the shade is made from. I know that it's partly synthetic and it's partly cotton. And I know that cotton comes from a, a plant." And you can go on and on. But as I said, uh, I'm not going to uselessly belabor it. But if you care that far enough, then you finally don't know anything because you'll get back down to the elements. Those tangible things that were laying here on the planet, minding their own business. You get down to them, and then you don't know because you didn't create them. But you understand for a working description, the only thing that the mind can know is something that men did. That either you did, or in a wider sense, that men did. That men made this lamp. But you, comfortably speaking, you can't know anything about a tree. Now, we know that there are reams of books describing what's going on with a tree, and you can read it, and if you spend enough time and you went out and you observed trees and studied trees, then whatever the, the general prevailing view in forestry or whatever that science is, botany, you might say, well, I understand trees. Or I've read this book, the latest finding, and now I know what, what trees are up to. I know what their life's about. I know what they're feeling, blah, blah, blah. No, you don't. It's not possible. No one can know a tree. Not in the same way you can know a lamp. And one more time, I repeat, eventually, everything you know about a lamp is going to get down to wood and material and minerals. And then you don't know what's going on anyway. At any rate, if you can ever see that, I can't believe that will not be a refreshing shock. To realize, because I had the words in my head before I ever realized it, that men don't know anything. The mind does not know anything. I knew that was true before I understood it. I'd say it to myself long before I ever understood it in the way I do now. Because it's not allegory. And it doesn't affect life because when it comes to material objects and getting around in the tangible world, you do know something. Like I said, you know how to live. You know how to pump blood through your veins. But, ask your mind. 
would you take charge? I would like to perhaps knock off if you could do this. I would like to take a couple hours off. Will you take charge of keeping my heart pumping? When you woke up, you'd be dead. Because your mind does not know how to do it. The human mind now has through surgery and the study of anatomy and autopsies, etc. They know how the blood operates. They know how the, you know, they say they know how it works and they describe it in such a way that if you follow the directions, you can do surgery on the heart. And so you can say, well, they know how it works. No, they don't. Nobody knows how it works. And that's the point I'm saying is so subtle and it's just like a razor, the edge of it. If you can get on the right side of it, I guarantee you, you'll get something out of this other than just thinking or perhaps finding it interesting for me to talk about it. You understand, as much as they know, that's a good example. Now, I stumbled on it. Now, you can have a heart attack. You can have damage to your heart and et cetera. And you, as you know by now, they can do things that even 10, 15 years ago was unheard of, or at least 20 years ago. That they can go in now and do surgery on your heart. They can disconnect your heart and pump your blood mechanically. They can do things that your parents, your grandparents would never believe. It would be like magic. That's how much they know about the circulatory system, the workings of the heart. But do you hear me? The world's leading expert, whoever it might be, any of the experts, to say, well, I know how the heart operates, they do not. It's not possible. But they have made enough observations, thank God, you might say, especially if you plan to ever have heart trouble in the future, that they have made enough observations that fit, that if you suddenly go, <laughs> then you don't have to worry, assuming you find a reputable cardiac surgeon. Uh, trust me, you know, I, don't, I wouldn't let it get in my way. I wouldn't think, wait a minute, I'm not going to let him operate because I realize he doesn't really know. How the heart operates. My only question is, can you fix this? And if he says, yes, I know how, that's all I want to hear. I'm not going to stop and say, wait a minute. Now, you said you know how, but we're going to have to get, I am not, I'm, I'm sort of a reflective person. I must know. You said you know how it works, and you said you could fix it. Okay, okay. Now, I'm interested in that, certainly. But I want to know, do you know the heart? Do you know how, I mean how, in the widest philosophical sense, the heart operates. Don't do that. <laughs> Not unless you're insisting on suicide. In other words, you get the point. No one, it does not stop the mind from being able to lead us into worthwhile endeavors. But what it does for people assuming that you have the same interest I've had all my life to get to the bottom of all of this, to figure out what's going on, which what everyone says is going on is not what's going on. Even though they can point and say, well, we just described what's going on, and look out there, doesn't it fit? And if you don't watch it, you look and you go, well, yeah. And they go, I rest my case. And if you're an ordinary person, you think, well, shit, maybe they're right. No, they're not. But don't look somewhere else and go, well, I'll find out who is right. No, you won't. Now you can find out who's right. Don't know how you'd tell. Oh, this would be the closest. They'd say, well, I don't know. <laughs> Except then there are two types of people. You can find somebody that actually doesn't know. And they're not going to help you.
What you got to do is find somebody that if they would answer it, so I don't know. But actually knew something. You can't know how the heart operates. You can know enough to take it apart, repair it, put it back together, save someone's life. But do you hear me? That it is not possible for the human mind. It's got nothing to do, as you surely know, but it doesn't have anything to do with religion or God. It's not that the, you know, the Creator doesn't want us to know or that He has to hold some superior. The mind cannot know. And I can't describe it. You, you either turn and you'll finally see it. And it is a refreshing discovery. It may take you a few times, but it finally sticks with you. And it'll keep popping up. The day you are working with something, like I've always got this figured out, or I thought I had it, and it'll strike you, well, you idiot. You may be coming up with a better model. You may have had a picture flash through your mind that intrigued you. Well, what the hell do you think you're doing? It's not but a hobby. You're just playing with pictures. You're just playing with words. Now, with people like us, it may personally benefit you along the way until you find out that, you know, I hadn't been going anywhere, but it gives the impression, well, I'm making progress. I see it more clearly. That's okay as long as you remind yourself, no, I don't. But I think I do. I guess to put it verbally, if everything goes right, if you're lucky, you keep seeing things better and better. Like as you keep seeing a new way of looking at something or thinking about something. A new discovery, which I said is meaningless. But it's like if you make enough new discoveries, I guess if things go right, it's like you, they end up sort of this vast horizon. Let's assume you're looking out at a plane, and right at the horizon are a great number Hundreds, at least, of little tabs sticking up just over the horizon. And let's assume each little tab represents one of your discoveries. One of your discoveries that helped you at the, at the time, that, aha, it encouraged you. It seemed to have freed you a bit, seemed to have given you new insight. My description for the time is, it seems as though... You finally get enough of them out there, or maybe it's a scale, and you get enough of these weighing down one side of the scale, even though I say they're meaningless, and it finally tips the scale, maybe, to where the other side pops up and goes, surprise, and it's empty. What I was going to get out with the tabs on the horizon, I changed allegories, I know, in mid-metaphor. It's like you make enough meaningless observations and finally, they mean something. That you have this one big observation, which is, hey, all my observations are meaningless. Perhaps meaningless is not the right word with any of you with sensitive feelings. Perhaps ultimately, no, I can do it. How about questionable? <laughs> For you thin-skinned lizards. You realize you can't be a lizard and be thin-skinned? Which had something to do, in my mind, with our reptilian brain and the ability to instinctively live without your mind knowing how to live. The reptilian brain must be hard. We consider our conscious brain to be our shining 
our, our greatest development. But how about this? The cortex is in the frontal lobes right up there where it easily get damaged. And the old reptilian brain is way down right in the center. Almost impossible to get to. Supposedly neurosurgeons hate to go down and to look for the thalamus. It's like you have to you know, bury it down on a dumpster trying to get down to where you want to go. They like things the cortex. Look at things right up there at the top. But I say now I think about it that way. That if life was all that concerned, if consciousness was that big a deal, it would be in reverse. The seat of consciousness would be down there, right down in the center between the hemispheres, right at the top of the brain stem. But no, it's the reptilian brain down there. The no thinking, do everything brain. And it's like it has as its tag team partner, it has as its defense, all this mushy surrounding where consciousness, thought, See, I've come up with a new one that fits. And you could think, God, right? Somebody can hear me and think, boy, does he know a lot. He knows just exactly how things are operating. No, I don't. I used to. Just same as you. That's one way to get rid of email and people who write me is, in case you can imagine, they write me with all these complex questions. Because normally the first time I'll give them complex replies. Very sincere. I, I read and usually pick up a sense of you know, how they feel, what they were feeling when they wrote it, and I reply. But then if they do it a second time, some way or other, I'll finally point out to them you know, that nobody knows anything, and I hope you don't believe that I'm an exception. <laughs> and that's usually the last time I hear from anybody. Well, I'll say maybe just a P.S. after my second reply. Well, let me point out one thing to you. I'm glad you know, to meet, to hear from somebody as intelligent as you seem to be and as interested in this sort of matter. And uh, it's my pleasure if I can be of any service to reply. But I, I would like to point out that you're making a mistake to believe that I know anything. You know, please keep this in mind as you, you know, consider what I've said in the last two letters. And then sometimes I put PPS. By the way, you don't know anything either. No, there's anybody else. The only advantage I see that I have is I know it. You know, right soon. <laughs> Be sure to reply quickly. <laughs> but doesn't it sound, well, of course, I didn't make that up. You got enough, nothing else. Five, six hundred year old Zen stories. But, uh, that is very off putting if you don't understand it. But that's one reason I was trying to be a bit more specific tonight, instead of just allegorical, whether you immediately got it, that it is not possible to know anything. And there have been philosophers, just ordinary people, over the last, hell, better than 2,000 years in the Western world, just in the Western world, that they have played with that idea, do we actually know anything? There have been some of the leading ones, historically, that got all entangled in that, that you don't get anything out of trying to read it, but they enjoyed it. It was obvious they enjoyed And they would come up with all kinds of little curious views, some, sometimes getting close to this. But they obviously did not have an understanding of it themselves, but they would just, it was the mind speculating itself that do we actually know anything? Are we fooling ourselves? Does the mind just read what it says to itself and then impose it on reality? So there's ordinary people have played with the idea, but it's not merely a theory.
if you can see it, it is an easily, well, it's an observable reality. I have no doubt that very few people, but only very few people on the planet would ever see it. I mean, nobody has an interest, and it really doesn't do anything for you unless you're trying to, quote, wake up. Other than that, it wouldn't do you any good. It would be a useless piece of information. It's a great secret to realize that the mind cannot know anything. Other than the exceptions I said, if the mind observed you or another human, if it's something that humans did, that's the only thing that you can know, in any sense of the word, that you can know. When it comes to things non-tangible, the mind can't know anything. It cannot know. It will never know how the heart operates. Of course, of even greater interest, it will never know how the mind operates. But anyway, I was trying to encourage you, if you look, you can, it's not allegorical. It's not philosophical. But yet, notice, you can sit there right now and try your best. You're like, well, do I get it? And you can't get it. That is because, see, what your mind's doing is, well, let me see, I can figure this out, and I'll finally, I'll know what he's talking about. It does get kind of eventually... Reducto ad absurdum. Reducio ad absurdum. It just brought down the point that, well, if you're lucky, it gets down to the point of, of course, you don't say that. That's ill-mannered. The spirit of Zarathustra might hear you and be offended. And him think, I went through all that crap just so people like you could show up 3,000 years later, and finally get to the truth also, and then you go, like, I need this. I can just see him calling over the spirit of Buddha, and then start, you know, ready to whip my ass. Or yours, if you did it. I wouldn't do it. Well, that was the first subject. The second one I was going to tie it to, we've got four minutes. I say we just all put our little heads on our desk for the next four minutes. And those of you who'd like to, you can <laughs> decide to pledge your allegiance silently to yourself. Or maybe send up a prayer to Santa Claus or the Easter pig. Some of you are not orthodox. If you are, who brings you little chocolate eggs and stuff? On Easter. Well, no. We'll take up subject number two next time. My challenge is, who's going to remember to say, what was that other thing we were going to talk about? That concludes this talk. Be sure to visit us at jancox.com, where you can search through 3,000 talks for topics of interest, or just leave us a message.